As the modern church seeks to do its part in reflecting and building God's beloved community, there is a spiritual reality with which we must reckon first. Too many people today have been inflicted with a toxic theology that leads them to be terrified of God. Rather than fulfilling the purpose of all theology, to liberate us from sin and draw us closer to God and one another, the people who purvey toxic theology seek to exercise control through tribalism, guilt, shame, and spiritual bondage. Instead of helping us embrace a deeper relationship with God, these theologies move many to keep God at arm's length. A deeper dive into the entire scope of the scriptural witness should lead us to look forward to God showing up in our life, even when God comes to hold up a mirror to us, that we might see clearly the ways we fall short of living into beloved community. God comes not to break us down, but to build us up. As you listen to this sermon, I hope you'll feel empowered in your own response to God. Verses 12 through 8. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses set out with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. To the elders he had said, Wait here for us until I come to you again, for Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute may go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Let the church hear what the Spirit is saying. This morning our gospel lesson comes to us from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Six days later, this is six days after Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my Son, the Beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. 
And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Let the church hear what the Spirit is saying. Friends, I would invite you to pray with me as you see it printed in your order of worship. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So I was thinking this week about my middle school principal. Now, having said that, let me just say things I know are different today. I think middle school principals and assistant principals, uh, you know, qualify for sainthood, you know, the minute they walk through the door. In fact, I think all public educators and administrators doing the work of, of, of nurturing the lives of our, of our youngest family members um, deserve sainthood. But anyway, I was thinking about my middle school principal this week. And in my middle school, we had this really, really long hallway. And from time to time, our, our principal, and this was a small school, so there was just the principal. He was the only administrator there. From time to time, we would see the middle school principal out in the hallway, you know, kind of yucking it up with the students and connecting and making relationships and just kind of being there, almost like a regular human being, you know. That, it, was a, it, was a, it, was a really, it was a really, really neat thing. However, there were times, and, I, and it did happen to me once, true confessions, where I got called to the principal's office, and all of a sudden, everything changed. Because I knew that I was being called to the principal's office, not for a, hey, come on in, have a cup of coffee, let me get to know you. Ugh, I was in trouble, and I knew it. And I was scared to death. Is that an experience that you... No, no you, you all never got into trouble before. But maybe someone that you know did. But is that, is that, is that a, 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 an experience that you've had? Where, where you've had that moment in one, one place where the principal shows up, it's great, we're happy, we're good, it's a wonderful thing. But then when the principal shows up and we, we know we're in trouble, yeah, not so much. I was thinking about this experience in relationship to conversations that I have with people about their own experiences with God and when God shows up in their life. Now, there are a lot of times when we are really happy to have God show up in our life, right? Christmas, we are really happy that God shows up at Christmas, right? Easter, we are really happy that God shows up at Easter. What about Good Friday? Maybe not so much. Think about the experience of Adam and Eve in the garden after they've eaten the apple. When God shows up in the garden, where are they? They're hiding. Why? They are scared to death because they felt vulnerable. They were naked. They'd always been naked, but they were naked, but now suddenly it was a problem. They were vulnerable. They knew it. And they would have just rather not, God not showed up that day. See, this is, this is the problem. 
You know, there are many people, and, and so, at times, even maybe even ourselves. But we know people in our lives with the whole prospect of God showing up. There isn't Christmas. There isn't Easter. I mean, there is, but in their mind, anytime God shows up, brings this sense of fear. It brings this sense of vulnerability in their lives. They would really God not show up at all. Keeping God at arm's length is much easier and it's much safer. And yet I think that those experiences are born out of misunderstanding, misuse of Scripture by leaders, even by church leaders, about how and why and when God shows up in our life. I, I'm going to be very, I'm going to hold this very gently, but I think that some of this experience and some of this fear, particularly amongst younger generations, is born out of bad theology. And again, I use that very, very carefully. Leaders, trusted adults, family members that give people this image of God that's rooted in um, God doesn't love you because you're a screw-up. God doesn't love you because you're not worthy. God doesn't love you because, well, look at you. That's bad theology. And I think a lot of times that this gets perpetrated by people who are projecting their own insecurities onto others. It's easier for them to feel good about themselves by tearing somebody down. Sometimes this bad theology is perpetrated on people as a way of holding control and power. You know, this is rooted in this priestly sense. Yeah, you're a screw-up. You're not worthy. You're, you're you. But you know what? It's okay. Because I've got you covered. I've got you covered. I'll stand. I'll stand in place. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. About, about control. It's all about control. This kind of theology about God and God showing up that inspires fear and in some places terror and in all cases like this, a great deal of pain, does a fundamental disservice to the whole scope of Scripture. And it gives us a misunderstanding of, again, as I said, how, why, and when God shows up. Think about the texts, the one that Greg read earlier from Exodus, when Moses goes to the mountain and there's this enormous display of God's power. The Israelites are relatively, after a long period of slavery and isolation, they're still relatively new to this whole idea of God's power being on display. It starts when Moses comes back to Pharaoh and there's the plagues. And then there's the parting of the Red Sea. And then there's the manna. And then there's the water. And there's the pillar of, of uh, smoke by day and the pillar of fire by night. And now there's this business on the mountain. 
This is new to them. But the one thing, in, in, in spite of this, what, what looks like just this pyrotechnic show, God is showing up for a very, very specific reason for Israel. A people who had been broken and downtrodden, enslaved, abused, oppressed, really with no life and dignity of their own, God shows up in their lives to help them be the community that God had in mind for them from the very beginning. This would be no small effort. If you think about 400 years of slavery, it would take a pretty big, um, it would take a pretty big act to help reestablish the people of Israel, the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It would take a lot, I think, to get people's attention and get us woven into what God's purpose is, and that is to build this community that could be a witness to God's own love, God's own presence, God's own call, God's own creative energy, even millennia ago. And then we have Matthew. This transfiguration story, I think, for, for, for many has been a perplexing story for years because it does involve, uh, involve change. But we can't only look at this transfiguration story as a, as a singular kind of moment snapshot in time because it's dependent on another story. Six days when they are in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus and the disciples, uh, a place of, of uh, great significance to the empire, Jesus says to the disciples, who do the people say that I am? You know, you're out there, you're in the crowd, you hear things. What are they saying? Who do people say that I am? Well, then they get, they get a whole raft of answers. Well, some say you're Moses, and some say you're Elijah, or some say you're one of the prophets, and there's all of these opinions out in the crowd about who Jesus is. Okay. But then he pulls it back, and he says to the disciples, who do you say that I am? Not the crowds who kind of sit at the margins, but you who have lived with me, walked with me, ate with me, heard me teach, seen the miracles, been privy to all of what's going on. Who do you say that I am? And Peter being Peter, he gets up and he says, well, it's obvious, isn't it? You're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. And he was right. But not for the right reasons. You see, remember the, the messianic expectations of the time were that the Son of God would come, would sit on David's throne, would throw out the Romans, would restore order to Israel, would bring a spiritual renewal to the temple worship, and would, it would almost be like hitting the reset button in a year of jubilee, and it would begin with armed conflict. That's what they expected. Peter was right. Have you ever had one of those moments when you were asked a really hard question and you got it right and you felt like you won something? Maybe you stood a little bit taller, you know, yeah, I got it right. You know, and you may not say it to anybody else, but in your side, you know, you got it right. 
I can almost see Peter in that sense thinking, especially after Jesus says, yep, Peter, you're right, and you know what? He was still calling him Simon at the time. He said, Simon, I'm going to call you Peter, Petros, rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. There's a little bit of irony that goes with that. I can see Peter getting all puffed up and ready. Yeah, I'm number one, you know, getting ready to print the business cards, getting ready to, you know, post on his social media that, yep, this is, this is a good day, a red letter day. And then everything changes because Jesus says, yes, you're right, I am. Now let me tell you about what kind of a Messiah I'm going to be because you see the Messiah is going to suffer and die at the hands of the leaders. And I can see, I can see Peter backpedaling and not being able to backpedal fast enough, wondering, do I really want to be number one in this kind of a movement? This isn't what I signed up for. And then six days later, when they go to the mountain to pray, and they're kind of distracted, and they look back, and here is Jesus with Moses, the law, and Elijah, the prophets, all of Israel, all of the history, all of the grandeur, all of the power, all of the stories, all of the legend, all of the pageant, right there with Jesus. And I can almost hear Peter going, okay, this is more like it. I can live with this. So let's make a Kodak moment right now. Sorry for younger folk, Kodak, you know, little cameras and you could, yeah, okay. Sorry. Snapchat, there we go, yeah. Yeah, so I have to be careful about my cultural references. But I can see uh, that Peter in this moment wants to stop it. He wants to freeze it. He wants to make this, he, he, I think he's got like Disneyland in his mind. Let's make this attraction on the mountain and bring people in and this will be great and this will be wonderful and this will be It'll be safe because it's what we expect. Then the voice comes. Then God shows up. And I don't know about you, but me, if I'm sitting there and Jesus is there and I see Moses and Elijah show up, I'm probably pretty scared, a little bit freaked out. Then they weren't. But when God speaks from the cloud, then they're afraid. Then they fall down. They become like dead men. They, they are petrified. And what does God say? This is my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. This is like the seal of approval. This is the endorsement. This is five stars on Yelp, okay? However you want to characterize it, this is it. Which would have been enough. But then the last word that God speaks is, listen to him. Peter, James, and John realize in that moment that they don't get to dictate what kind of a Messiah Jesus is going to be. And yes, they were terrified but in this moment, God is helping Peter and James and John put into perspective, to put into context what it is they are about and what it really means for them to be in a relationship with this Jesus of Nazareth and then to follow him, not only in that moment, but for the rest of their lives. When God shows up, 
It's important to understand that when you, when you step back and you look at the whole scope of Scripture, the reasons that God shows up are about bringing life and bringing healing and bringing restoration and creating community and bringing the context for justice to, 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 to be known in the world. God brings that. God brings that. That's what God's purpose is. God comes with a purpose. God doesn't just show up in our lives to freak us out. God doesn't show up in our lives just to create this pyrotechnic light show to say, look how much power I have. You know, sometimes we, we get caught up and, and we need something that gets our attention. God has a way of doing that. Sometimes when God shows up, it is uncomfortable. It can be painful because usually that's when God is holding the mirror up to us. Not to create guilt, not to create punishment, not to create fear, but to hold this mirror up to us so that we can see who we've become. If, if our life, if our relationships, our actions are about tearing things down, if that's what we care more about, then yeah, God is going to come in and get our attention and say, see this? This isn't who I created you to be. And the encouragement and the healing and the understanding that we're not bound by our past mistakes. We're not bound by our past hurts. We're not shackled to the mistakes that we've made. When God shows up, there's always an opportunity to bypass that and to step into something new for us and for our community. When God shows up, God always comes with an invitation an invitation addressed to you, to me, to us as individuals. An invitation to be a part of the beloved community that God has always had in mind. Come, be a part of this community. Come, know me. Come, know one another. Come, share this gift. With the world, come, come. God showing up is about helping each of us. Wherever we are in our journey, wherever we are on the path, God showing up is about helping us take the next step to knowing God, to knowing ourself, and to knowing one another as a part of God birthing this beloved community, birthing these relationships that transcend all of the isms that we can name, that transcend all of the ways that we separate ourselves from one another and from God. Because you see, that's, that's what God has in mind. 
that we might all know that love, that we might all know that joy, that we might all know that possibility. And when we get a glimpse of it, when we get a taste of it, we begin to understand what more there is to experience. And it starts with learning to trust how, when, why God shows up. And some of it is just simply about knowing God. Not knowing the God that was foisted upon us out of fear and birthed out of pain. But knowing the God who shows up in our life to love us and care for us, to redeem us and to make us whole. This is the transition period. As we've celebrated the promise of God, now we enter into a season, another season, another opportunity to weave it more fully into our life. Praying sounds kind of pedestrian maybe, but the act of prayer is, is, is an act of opening ourselves up, saying, okay, God, I'm here, and I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready to, to know you. I'm ready to understand. I'm ready to love. I'm ready to serve. I'm ready to care. I'm ready to act in ways that are different to make good on the gift we've received. You know, in all of this, this work that we talk about knowing God, it, it, at its face is not really any different than how we know each other and how we develop relationships. Prayer is the act of just talking. I mean, talk to God like we talk to people. How do you develop your friendships that exist in the world? You, just, you start by talking to them. And another part of that is hearing the story. Hearing their story, not just about sharing our own story, but hearing the story. And, and for the, this case with God, is hearing God's story. Understanding what the scriptural witness is and what it isn't. Being able to see the whole picture of how God can be known. It's difficult. It takes a lifetime, but I guess you could say, what else are we going to do? And then, like our friendships, you talk, you learn their story, and then there's this phase in the friendship where you begin to do things together. Best friend, or a significant other, or a coworker. Hey, after work, let's go get a cup of coffee. Hey, I'm going hiking. There's a great trail. Why don't you come with me? With us, in our relationship with God, there's praying, there's knowing God's story, and then there's, okay, God, let's go do things together. Let's go out in the world, and this love your neighbor stuff sounds really good. Let's go do this together. Let's go down and volunteer and help in the shower ministry, or let's provide food for share ministry, or let's take... Um, 
a meal to our neighbor who I know just had surgery or just had a baby or, okay, I mean, we could spend the rest of the hour or so just talking about those things. But it's about doing, beginning to go out and do that work with God. So as you pray, as you know God's story, and then as you go out and work with God, lo and behold, over time, you begin to realize you have this relationship with God. And that God showing up in our life is not a scary or a frightening or a painful thing. But it's like our best friend who calls and says, you busy? Let's go do something. This season that we're entering into these next weeks, five Sundays plus Palm Sunday before Easter, we're going to do another. We're going to do another series, and the series is, builds on this idea of how do we live into this relationship with God? How do we prepare ourselves? And even though I know there aren't any baseball fans in this congregation, okay, we're going to do spring training. We're going to do spring training because this time is a time of hopefulness. It is a time of hopefulness. Every team that's reporting to their spring training site has the belief and the hope that in come the end of October, is it the end of October now? It changes so much. They're going to be hoisting that World Series trophy. Doesn't matter how realistic it is or not, every team has that hope because over the course of 162 games, lots can happen. Injuries, trades, People overperforming, people are underperforming. So every ball player goes into spring training with this fervor and with this hope to learn from previous seasons that they may apply what they've learned in the next season. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to do a little spiritual spring training. We're going to take a look at our life. We're going to look at the ways that we've broken relationships, but we're also going to be living hopefully because God knows how much hope we need in our world today. God certainly knows. And God shows up to bring that hope and the call and the invitation is that we would show up at God's side to share that hope in this community, in that community, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, wherever we go. That the world would learn to know and to experience the love that God has for us all, the love that God has for all of creation and the desire that we might know the wholeness and the fullness of God's presence and God's love. Amen.